Thank you, worship team, and y'all are the worship team. So uh, thank you for your, for your singing, and thank you for joining us online this morning as well. And wherever you are, if you could uh, find a Bible or a Bible app and turn with me to the book of Revelation, should be easy to find. Go to the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 20 today. I know one of the prevailing feelings of this season of life is a desire to get back to normal, whatever that is, and I have no idea when or if or what that looks like. But what we're studying today is a time on earth when life will be far better than normal. We're actually not talking about heaven. Heaven will be perfect. But we're talking about a season of time that God has described in his word that'll be far better than normal, where global problems will disappear. It's called the millennium, a thousand-year season of time that is coming. Uh, We often refer to that thousand-year period as the millennium. One thing to keep in mind today as we study is a principle about the nature of God, because you want to make sure as you read God's word that you have a good and proper biblical view of who God is. And what we will be thinking about today is the goodness of God and the reality that God desires and delights to bless his people. We've, We've studied a lot in recent weeks about the necessity of God's justice. We want to think today about the clarity we have on the goodness, the blessing of God. As an introduction to our study of the millennium, I want to take uh, some time to look at how the millennium in the future fits in with God's unfolding plan for all of time. Is that a big enough picture? What does the Bible say about God's plan for all of time? And as we take a look uh, on the chart and thinking biblically through the Old Testament in just really a few minutes, uh, this is a way of understanding uh, Scripture that, would, that helps us, a, 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 an understanding sometimes called dispensationalism. How's that for a big word to learn this morning? Dispensationalism. It might, if it's new to you, it might sound like a weird disease or a strange philosophy. It's actually this way of understanding the scripture, you'll see it unfolding, God's plan for history. And then we want to see how the future millennium fits into and really completes God's plan for all of time. So follow along with me. It's kind of a detailed chart. Don't try to write it down. There are handouts at the back. The top copy of those handouts is uh, this chart. If you're interested in the specific Bible references or more uh, study or understanding about it. So here is a chart of all of time, okay? It starts with creation and uh, will take us all the way through the the end of the Bible and the description of eternity. Of course, eternity lasts forever. Uh, There are these seven eras or dispensations of time within Bible history and prophecy. So we're looking at past, present, and future. And there is something that all these periods have in time, have in common. 
throughout time, here's what all the dispensations, they should not just be known for their differences, but for how they unify our understanding of God and man and time. Mankind in each stage of life or history is tested and God triumphs. So it's like these are God showing mankind himself and thus his need for God himself. So one thing we'll see is a a question that's answered in each era. Will mankind obey God in these conditions and then these conditions and then these conditions? The answer is always no. The human heart is sinful and we always fail. So that raises this second important question. Will God show his grace in these conditions? And the answer is always yes. So let's just see how this unfolds. The first season of time we could call the age of innocence. This is before sin in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, of course. And even in those absolutely sinless, perfect conditions, as Satan tempted, what happened? They fell. They sinned. Mankind became sinful. And so conditions changed. But do you know what happened at the end of that season? was that God gave them garments of skin. In other words, God performed the first sacrifice that indicated there would be a sacrifice ultimately for sin. So God showed his grace. And it began a a season of time we could call uh, the season of conscience where will mankind, now understanding sin, respond to conscience and do the right thing. But if you look over time, what happened is the whole world became corrupt and God had to send a flood. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And and God showed his grace to Noah and his family and he continued uh, his story, God's story of humanity and his plan to show us his grace. And so that brought a time you could, we, has been called human government where, you know, now that man knows that God is serious about sin and will judge and can intervene, will, will they govern themselves and, and, and behave, if you will? But what happened is that they built a tower in rebellion against God, trying to go up to God, and so God confused the languages. But God was still showing his grace and was not done with humanity, and so he chose the man Abraham, and we could call this season the era of, or dispensation of promise, because now God says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and so, of course, it's ultimately through Jesus that God would fulfill this promise to bless the whole world, but he now is working especially with the people of Israel, Jewish people, and he begins to unfold his plan for them. Of course, you probably, if you've read the book of Genesis, you know that it ends up in Egypt because you've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob, become the 12 tribes. Joseph goes ahead to Egypt, and there they are for some 430 years, really in judgment of God. Uh, You could say in the wrong place, but God shows his grace and delivers them through Moses. And Moses brings them out, and they have the Passover, and they head to a place 
where God gives the law. They go to Mount Sinai and the law is given to them. You'd say this should be an ideal situation compared to the previous ones because, you know, they they were supposed to know what to do somehow from their own human heart, but they didn't. So now God has spelled it all out and you got all the, 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 the Ten Commandments and all the rules if you just follow this. But could man follow the law? No. And so mankind was shown to be a failure again, but did God show his grace? That's what the sacrifice system was all about, pointing to the fact that God forgives, God forgives, God forgives. But they kept having to make those sacrifices until the solution of sin for all time came, and that was, of course, Jesus. And so Jesus came, God's only son. This is the ultimate solution to all sin of all that went before and paying it all forward for us as well. And the solution, the hinge of history is Jesus and his death on the cross. And so that ushered into uh, the age that we live in now called the church age. And God gave his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And now for almost 2,000 years, we live in the privilege of having known who Jesus is, having the completed word of God, and having, in fact, the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwells us. So we should all just have a wonderful world right now because of all the privileges, and yet we find that mankind is sinful. And so eventually, and this is kind of where we've focused our study in prophecy, eventually God will complete this age we live somewhere in it and he will complete this age with the rapture and and we will be as believers caught up to heaven and we we will be then forever with the lord in heaven but on earth it ushers in a time of judgment which really is most of the book of revelation describing the judgments that are coming in those years last week then in revelation 19 we saw how jesus christ himself will then at the end of the tribulation descend from heaven and judge all unbelief even as he saves many who turn to him in faith at the end that's the second coming there is one dispensation in god's revealed plan that is yet to come it is what we see in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand-year period of time we call the millennium. So hopefully that helps us just to get a bigger view of what God is doing. God is always probing our hearts, isn't he? Showing our need for him and then showing us that he is gracious. So what is consistent through all these ages is God shows his grace. God shows his grace. Christ returns at the end of chapter 19 of Revelation, and this then is how Revelation 20 opens. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the keys to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He, that's the angel, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Won't that be great? He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, there's a cloud here, isn't there? After that, he must be set free for a short time. So the start of this millennium is marked by the binding of Satan. He is put away. He is silenced. An angel shows up. 
with the key and the chain to the abyss. Now, if you gave your keys to your teenager, you're giving them authority, right? God gave the key to the angel. He has authority over Satan to bind him in the abyss, or you may have the term bottomless pit. Uh, some of you may recall in the, in the Gospels, Luke 8, 31 refers to this, where the demons, Jesus cast the demons out of the girl, and they said, don't send us into the abyss, but send us into the pigs, which, and Jesus, interestingly, complied with that. But you see, the demons know their future, and this is where Satan is held during this uh, season of time until his final judgment in the lake of fire. And he's bound then for a thousand years. And the question might come to our mind, well, okay, this is Revelation, so a lot of symbols in Revelation. Is this thousand-year period of time a literal thousand years? There's a, there's a basic Bible interpretation principle that goes like this. If the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Does a thousand years make sense? In fact, really most of the numbers in, in, uh, in biblical prophecy are literal. It does make sense that there would be a thousand year dispensation because in fact we are living in a dispensation, the church which is now almost 2,000 years since the day of Pentecost when it began. And preceding our dispensation was the dispensation of the law some 1,400 years. So yes, a thousand year dispensation makes perfect sense. During this time, Satan will be bound. That is why this dispensation, this era of time, will be so superior in the sense of the conditions because now you don't have Satan to deal with. If we had any idea how much evil was directly or indirectly the result of the work of Satan and demons pushing all that temptation towards us, we would have no question as to why we fail as much as we do, nor why there are people as evil in this world as we discover that they are. This is like a calm after the storm. To realize that after the tribulation and all the intense judgments, the persecution, the deaths, the awful wars, it finishes with Christ descending and judging unbelievers. And then, ah, it's over. And this incredible age begins. God has one more dispensation, and I would really call it the best one as, as, as God reveals himself through all these ages and, and really things improve. The privileges increase. In fact, if you were to back up and think from the perspective of those who lived before Christ, if they could really know the privileges we have today, to realize that we now have a completed word of God. We, we, we know who Jesus is. He's the son of God who actually came to earth and paid for our sins. If they would know that the Holy Spirit would dwell in us permanently, we live in such a privileged age so you would think the world would be joyful and peaceful. And Wow. It's anything but that. And Satan has been busy deceiving and corrupting and so all around us and through our lives and our, our own lives, we can see how families have been uh, destroyed and how uh, corrupt leaders have destroyed their, their nations and how um, tragic hurt through uh, moral perversions and, and, and abuse and even Satan's impact on all of us as he, as he tempts us towards uh, all kinds of uh, 
addictions and conflicts and personal failure. Satan's winning a lot, and, and that's with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit and with our understanding of grace in Jesus. And so an era is coming in which Satan himself will be bound. And after that, he will be set free. End of verse 3. So we picture what life is like in that time. This is earth, not heaven, right? We're in heaven. Things are perfect. New bodies. Everything is perfect in the presence of Jesus. This is on earth, so people are in human bodies. They will have children. And the responsibility of each person then, as now, will be to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. There's only one cross and one Savior and and one redemption available. But as children are born, they are born still with a sin nature. So there will be sin. And even without Satan, we realize that sin is powerful. Internal sin will still be present even when Satan is not. And so we kind of are, are, are warned at the end of verse 3 that there will still be problems in the millennial age. But back to the, the good news of verse 4 through 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. This is more of a heaven's view. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So having described the the intense persecution of the seven-year tribulation, we now see that those who gave their lives... In, in, in allegiance to Christ are actually going to be honored during that time. There's references to resurrection, so they are raised to life, and re- references to reigning with Christ. Uh, opening part of verse 4 talks about thrones and those who judge. We aren't completely certain who that refers to. Some uh, Bible scholars would say that's the same as the 24 elders that we see in heaven uh, throughout uh, chapters 4 through 19. Um, Could be. It could also reference simply uh, believers from our own age in addition to the believers of the tribulation age. There are some interesting passages of the New Testament that describe how believers will someday judge and reign. You may know the story or the account in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul is really rebuking the church saying, why are you taking your disputes between each other in the church to human judges and his argument is do you not know that the saints will judge the world so so what business do you have to think that you can't solve your own conflicts and have to go to the the secular courts it's a a powerful passage so the idea of us somehow sharing in the the judging of the world that's a that's mind-boggling and then we have those passages that describe how someday If we endure, we will also reign with him. Or 
Revelation 3, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. These two passages and others talking about us reigning with Christ again, they, they kind of stretch our mind because in some way Jesus wants to share the reign of this season of time. And somehow it seems to be given out as a, as a reward that we share with him in that. The martyrs, clearly, of the tribulation are included. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the, reigning, the, the resurrection is, 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 is crucial for us to kind of follow. This is one of the key passages to understand the different uh, resurrections. Uh, so if you, if you picture... Where resurrection began, of course, you have to go back to Jesus. He was the first fruits of resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. And then because he arose, of course, there will be all believers will, will rise. When do we in the church age come to life? If you die during this age, it says at the rapture, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then Christ will come and take those who are alive as well. So that's before the tribulation. And now this resurrection of those who died during the tribulation is at the end of the tribulation. And I believe that this is also when the Old Testament believers will receive their new bodies. Daniel 12, 2 speaks of that. Jesus talked about it. John 5, 29, how they will all come to life. So all believers will come to life either before or after, it seems, this crucial seven-year period of time. But what does verse 5 say? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That phrase I have in my Bible in parenthesis, which is probably a good way to, to render it. It's kind of a separate issue because the rest of the dead refers to unbelievers who will be resurrected after the millennium. And we will see that in our study next week at the end of this chapter. You see, those who reject Christ are also raised raised to be eternally judged. And so that is a sobering thought. Verse 6, or end of verse 5, this is the first resurrection, so that'll be the last resurrection. But the first resurrection, uh, verse 6, blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the first resurrection seems to be all believers, which is before this age. Church age believers, tribulation martyrs, as well as all the Old Testament saints. The first resurrection somehow sharing in the reign of Christ during this important and exciting time. Second death, no power over those who are believers, right? That second death at the end of chapter 20, that's not for us. We live forever. At the end of verse 6, if you just keep reading, you realize there has been a fast forward or like a skip in your old cassette because it says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> the first six verses have been all about the beginning of the, tribulation, of the, of the millennium. And in an instant, we have fast-forwarded to the end of the millennium. You know, why wouldn't they tell us a little bit more about what happens during the millennium? I think the answer is pretty simple. That's because 
huge portions of the Old Testament, as well as some in the, in the New, tell us about the coming millennial kingdom that God promised to his people, the Jews. And so we need to take a look at the Old Testament descriptions of the millennial kingdom to understand what really happens between verses 6 and 7. So the big issue is this. God keeps his promises. And throughout the Old Testament, he made many unconditional promises. There there were many that he said, if you do this, then I will do this. And that's what happened really during the Old Testament age and the kings and all the judgments and the Babylonian captivity. Those were a lot of conditional promises, but there were many that were given to Israel that there were no conditions. And you find this idyllic, amazing, wonderful life on earth. And so the question is, those have never been fulfilled, so what do you do with that? Does God keep his promises? If you've read through the, the entire Bible, as many of you have, and, and sometimes you get into those prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the so-called minor prophets, and, and you go, what is this talking about, this great time? that I don't remember that in history. No, you don't, because they haven't happened yet. But God keeps his promises, and God delights to bless his people. Uh, there, are, there are Christian traditions and whole denominations that would say, just to give some understanding of, of other ways that people have looked at this, that would say these promises, these huge portions, are invalid, that uh, they are not for, for Israel at all, and there's no expectation that they should be. And so they would say that in some way, you know, maybe we today in the church age spiritually inherit those blessings, and they're kind of referring to the fact that all the good things that God has done for our age. I think that's really, really stretching it. I think that's really hard to say that all of these literal descriptions would fit the church. And we're going to just kind of scratch the surface of a few of those And you'll see that these really don't make sense in any way except literal, because if the literal sense makes sense, we should not seek another sense. Uh, This understanding that uh, there are promises for Israel in the future is really part of what we've called dispensational thinking or dispensational theology, as opposed to, if this term is familiar to you, covenant theology, which would say that the church kind of is a blending of of Israel. But we would take it that these are literal promises, and it's exciting to think how that fits exactly with a literal understanding of what we've just read in Revelation 20. As we look at some of these specific promises in the Old Testament, keep in mind this principle now about God. He delights to bless. He delights to give good gifts. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11, if if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so we need to to keep in, in, in a good, healthy tension the need for God to be just, but his desire to be extraordinarily infinitely gracious and good to his people. And if you just look at the record of how God has treated his people in, in the past, he, just, he says, I'm going to give you these three great times of feasting. Go and in, enjoy. Enjoy one another. Enjoy food. Enjoy laughter. 
He designed kids to make us enjoy life, and we do. He designed marriage. He designed so many things that says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. So give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father? So let's begin to take a look at some of the good things of this era of time. Now, I've called this first section spiritual or political because you really can't separate them, can you? Uh, There is no separation of church and state in the millennium. And why would we expect there to be? Because the Lord is king. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem. So this is literally on earth in the city of Jerusalem. Half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea. Half of it to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea. Can you picture in the back of your Bibles, you have the, the nation of Israel. And you look one direction, there's the, the Dead Sea. The other section, you got the Mediterranean Sea. So there's going to be water flowing from Jerusalem in summer and in winter, and the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. No separation of church and state, because the Lord is king. This is a fascinating passage to think about it geographically. Some of you remember last week we talked about Christ coming and descending. Where does he land? Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives. And it says a few verses before this that as he lands, it'll split the Mount of Olives with part of it going to the north, north, part of it going to the south, creating a valley in between. And that would make perfect sense when a couple of verses later he says, and so there's going to be a spring of water and some of the water's going to go that way and some of the water's going to go that way. And now the arid land of Israel is now plentifully watered. Just part of his blessing. And God is, Christ is king over the whole earth. No one's going to, no one's going to question the authority of Christ throughout this season. In fact, there will be no atheists. No atheist. Many people shall come up and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's like Jesus is going to be teaching again. And Jesus will be enthroned, I think, literally, physically, people all over the world will know Jesus is king and and he will be visible. Think that that's... Satan is bound, and Jesus is enthroned. It changes everything. So there will be no creation evolution debates. There will will be no theism versus uh, atheism discussions. Because everybody will know he is Lord. Another feature. Sorry, another verse. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, you guys are unique because you came here to study the word of God, but how many people around the world are actually studying the word of God? It's pretty scarce right now. We have the whole word of God, but if you think of the percentage of people on earth studying the word of God regularly, you are you're really special in so many ways. But this will be a time when everybody knows what God's word says. There will be no oppression of Israel. No oppression of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the nations and they will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. So God is going going to, in a perfect way, resume and complete and fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. 
God says, I'm going to choose you, Abraham, Genesis 12. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And this is part of that ultimate fulfillment. Israel is today opposed by almost everybody. You notice that? First of all, it's remarkable Israel exists, but they have become a nation again in our own lifetime, some of you. And God is going to bless Israel again. And that's frankly why America's friendship with Israel is a big deal. Uh, they have very few friends. The conflicts in Israel probably won't be solved in our lifetime. I mean, they won't be because only Jesus can solve them. Psalm 122.6 says we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And I remember hearing my dad praying that often. We should pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but ultimately it's only Jesus who is going to bring about this peace in the millennial age. Remember the, the Christmas story? You kind of know the sequence of events probably. You hear it quite often, but the angel comes to the shepherds on the hillside and says, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Have you ever wondered about that? Because it didn't seem to happen in Jesus' lifetime. And it's sure not happening in our time. When are those promises of Jesus bringing peace on earth, goodwill towards men ever going to happen? It's in the millennium. And there will be finally peace on earth. Today, there can only be relative peace. I don't mean peace among your relatives. That's another story. But there will be relative peace today if people are following the word of God and the principles of God. But what we see happening so often in war, what we see happening on our streets, is when there is a, a complete ignorance, uh, denigration of God and God's word. And so there's all this conflict. But to the degree that we follow God's word, there can be a degree of peace. And if there's any place, there should be peace. It should be in the body of Christ. Because we hold in common everything that's actually important. And so we need to pursue peace, especially in the body. Around the world, peace is tenuous, then it will be continuous. One reason is because all rebellion will be squelched immediately. This is a fascinating passage of this time in Isaiah. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. What a blessing for, for parents, right? Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, regardless of how your, your Bible might translate this a little different, the point seems to be clear that it's basically this. If somebody lives to be only a hundred years old in the millennium, it's because God judged them. And there will be this direct judgment while now God just seems to allow a lot of evil. Satan's on a long leash. But then there will be no Satan and Christ will be the judge. And so there will be rebellion that will be squelched with a, a shorter life. And so we see this is really part of a, a larger picture because we might be asking, well, how can people live that long if it's really this earth and this body? People just can't live that long unless creation in some degree is restored on earth. Who could do that? Christ can do that. Romans 8, for the creation await, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, that's because of sin, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
Now, this would also fit heaven, but I believe this refers also to a renewed environment on earth during the millennial age. Certainly, God can do that as well. If you, uh, now, there would need to be dramatic physical changes on earth for lifespans to go on hundreds of years. Uh, and yet, can you think of a time on earth when lifespans were dramatically longer? Dispensation number two, as we were looking at it earlier, where Methuselah, living 969 years, is it? Noah, some 600 plus, many in the 800 type range, where conditions on earth were different and uh, obviously God could restore the earth for longer lifespans. In fact, that seems to fit with other descriptions of this time. There will be no sickness. No inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people will do, who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So I don't think it's saying there's no sin, but not the sicknesses. So this, this, this causes us to ask a lot of questions, and that's okay, just as in the law the area of the law, they couldn't really understand the church age. We're not going to fully understand the millennial age, but we realize, oh, there's going to be this sense of forgiveness. And many, most, we trust, will turn to Christ and will, will believe in him, but sin will be present, but sickness will not be afflicting us. There's other passages that describe that as well. And the land will be different. Isaiah 35, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. There will be this renewed, restored creation of the world. No more drought. No more famine. Uh, No more environmental concerns. No more panic about saving the planet. Make no mistake, we need to be good stewards of our earth today. Uh, Don't dump your drain oil in the storm sewer and pick up your trash and recycle. And there's so many good things that can help to preserve and keep our environment clean as we realize, you know, the industrial age was kind of hard on things. But the ultimate solution will be when Christ cleanses and restores. Even, one more thing, even the animal world is going to be different. This, this is, this is how, how deep the changes will be. The wolf also will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. You don't see that happening. There is a transformation of the creation. You and I as believers today will be in heaven. This is happening on earth, as we said. We will be in the perfection of heaven, and to the degree we reign with Christ or know about this, we're seeing it, we will be seeing it from heaven's perspective. The earthly millennial kingdom is not for us. But as I kind of just try to think logically, conjecture logically, it seems it could be that people we know will live in this age. Follow me. If the rapture happens in our lifetime in, in the coming years or decades, some people who are living in unbelief today would be in the tribulation, right? And then in the tribulation, if they would turn to faith in Christ, they are believers, 
They may face persecution, martyrdom, and yet many, many will survive when Christ returns, and they are the ones who populate the earth during the millennial age. So it could be. Regardless, keep sharing your faith. Keep praying. Keep reaching those who are lost. Having taken a fast survey of the millennium in the Old Testament, let's pick it up in verse 7 in Revelation. Keep in mind, Satan was bound. Keep in mind, however, that every human being will still have the sin nature. Uh, we sin today plenty without Satan's help, right? Just our sin nature is responsible for, for most of, of our sin. Um, so realize in this final test of the millennium, with ideal conditions, when Jesus is known and ruling, that the sin nature is still bubbling and many people will not respond. Even in the best exposure about Christ, the human heart has a choice to make and many will rebel, which is why this final test will be so revealing. Verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released, released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, probably a symbolic reference to a, the whole world, throughout the earth to gather them for battle. So Satan is going to gather who for battle? In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, instantaneous, consumed by the fire God sends. So once Satan is released, these human hearts who have been living in inward rebellion, though not outward, doesn't seem that Jesus would tolerate that. They believe the lies of Satan. He goes out to deceive. That's what Satan does. If you want to think of the key hallmark of the character of Satan, it's not only what he does, it's what he makes us believe. And much of the world, most of the world is believing Satanic lies about life in general. Anyone living in rejection of God and his word and his son Jesus is believing the lies of Satan. Let's just be careful that, and clear that we as believers are also still susceptible to believing lies. Whether it's lies about the goodness of God, the unconditional love of God for us, having been already redeemed, cleansed, and forgiven? Whether we believe lies about what's important in life because we are pummeled with really satanic, worldly ideas of what's important in life. And so very seldom is this really top shelf, naturally. So let's make sure we are not believing the lies of Satan. That, that when we think through what is right and what is wrong, we are thinking through it with a biblical perspective and listening to the, our conscience that is, is, is touched by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit so that we believe that and recognize sin in ways that the world would never understand. 
Satan goes out and he deceives. Sin runs so deep that in this final test of humanity, when God releases Satan, masses of people who outwardly submitted to the rule of God, but did not trust him as Savior or really from the heart follow him as Lord, gather together believing Satan and somehow perceive that Jesus is the problem. They march against Jerusalem, and judgment comes far quicker than the elongated seven-year tribulation process. One whoosh, and God sends fire, destroying those who rebel. And with that, life time on earth really is complete, except for the final judgments, and we'll just... Uh, today, uh, touch the judgment of Satan in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet, remember the Antichrist and his sidekick, the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, the place reserved for the devil and his angels, so we assume this includes all the demonic world, and they are forever tormented. Next week, we will continue our study with the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21 as we look at the very sobering reality, the mind-boggling contrast between heaven and hell. But as we think through what we've seen today, Remember God's a God of blessing. And I don't know what your struggles are right now. Of course, there are many common things emotionally going on and, and uh, fears and, and struggles. It might be finances, conflicts, discouragement, whatever it is. Don't lose sight of your understanding of God as desiring to be good and show you his goodness. This is, this is not about a prosperity theology. This is about a theology of God who delights to bless. Sometimes we have to, in times of difficulty, and if that's you now, we have, to, we have to remind ourselves of the character of God by going through what is most important. So just a brief snapshot of what is God's most incredible goodness and blessing. You know Jesus you actually know who Jesus Christ is. There were generations, thousands of years, people did not know who would be the solution to sin. You know him. You know him personally if you've placed your faith in him. And so you know your sins are forgiven. Do you understand the burden that our world carries? And so if you sometimes wonder why our world does the crazy things it does, imagine the burden they carry that you as a believer in Christ do not have. Because you understand your slate has been wiped clean. The full payment on the cross has been made. There are no sacrifices to make. And that's why all around the world, even in religious settings, there is still this burden because they've not put their faith in Jesus. And they think that somehow they have to strive and do and accomplish and prove and you know that's not true. We understand the grace of God. You are blessed. You know the Holy Spirit lives in you. Don't, don't, ever, don't ever 
ignore the reality that you are a walking temple of the Holy Spirit and that is why love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control that whole list of those are fruits of the Spirit you live a an inverse life potentially if you yield to the Spirit of God in you and so you can have love for people that you find hard to love you can have joy when it's hard to have joy you can have peace when others do not you can be gentle when it goes against everything in your human sinful nature, you're living a transformed life. It's all made available to you because he gave you his spirit. And then you know other blessings that are, you know, God's special gift to you. It might be family, friends, provisions, something you enjoy. But think about it, list them, thank him. We're coming up on the Thanksgiving season. It's, let's not reserve it for that one time a year. Think through what God has done for you because God desires to bless. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we uh, know that we are blessed in this season. We often are uh, focused on what is not normal, what doesn't seem right, and, and uh, all the things we wish we could fix. Oh God, may we go back to look at that which you have done, are doing, and have already given us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. We rejoice in knowing you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.